Between the 4th and 3rd centuries BC, many different ethnic groups with great cultural differences lived throughout Italy. Those who had settled in central Italy included the Samnites, who lived in the area near present-day Abruzzi, Molise, the Etruscans in the north, the Umbrians around Rome, and the Hernicans and Volscians in South Latium. These people thought of the Romans as upstarts. They wanted to keep their national identities and were belligerent when Rome came calling. The Romans realized that in order to defend the wealth they were acquiring and their freedom, they had to secure their borders by attacking and colonizing those settlements. In anticipation of invaders, the cities built giant walls for defense. One such city, famous for its ancient walls, was Ferentinum, inhabited by the Hernicans. Many of the walls from this civilization are resurfacing today in the medieval village. Though they seem like they were built to last, they did not stop the Romans. Once Rome conquered a city, it confiscated the land and populated it with its own citizens to farm. These settlers then represented a bastion, making up a new border for the empire. How did land division and distribution take place? Well, even this far back, there were land surveyors who would lay out the measurements for dividing up the land and deciding how it would be used. This is a typical land surveyor from that time. The instrument he is using is called a groma, complete with plumb bob cords with which he can take his readings. Using this groma, he could draw perfectly straight and perpendicular lines on the ground that would later lead to centuries, or divisions of 100 plots, with sides more than 2,000 feet long. He would align the two plumb bob cords of the groma establishing the direction of the alignment with respect to the horizon. Once he decided the best reference point, based on the configuration of the terrain and exposure, he drew the main axis on which an agricultural division would be created. That might include new buildings or remain completely agricultural. They would then draw the decumanus, the second main axis of the settlement, perpendicular to the main axis. All individual plots were defined based on this orthogonal scheme. When the work was finished, the settlers came to take possession of the land. A great find in this old city stemmed from an ancient foundation set in a cathedral. From these walls, archaeologists were able to conclude that the podium of the Temple of Jupiter used to stand in this spot. It was on its ruins that the church was built. This was an admirable superposition that left intact, at least in the town's planning, the Acropolis, or the high part of the city, named Alatri, that for thousands of years was dedicated to worship. The Acropolis was defended by a hefty boundary wall formed in some spots by 14 rows of stone blocks. To enter, 
one would use either of two doors, this, the main one, or a smaller one called a posterola. Although the front door is wide and inviting, there is a curious image sculpted on the posterola, three converging phalluses. What secret could lie behind this audacious pattern? The symbol didn't shock anyone during pagan Roman times, for in reality it represented fertility and well-being. By studying images like these, archaeologists have discovered that the Romans believed that these depictions could ward off the evil eye and bad omens. If you entered through this back door, you could secure a powerful, wealthy, and enviable future. This might have meant getting into a money-making business at that time, the slave trade. Thousands of slaves were captured and turned into prisoners in the many battles to expand Roman territory. If you wanted, you could choose the strongest ones here in the outer regions at a price that would fetch twice as much in Rome. At Senyi in Latium, archaeologists noticed strange holes on the jams of the Saracen Gate, one of the most striking monumental gates the Romans have left us, with an architrave formed by two three-meter-long monoliths. After studying the positioning of the holes, they discovered that they were part of an ancient wooden lock system. The gates of the city, which the Romans founded in the early 5th century BC, were locked and reinforced in case of attack. The gate was probably named Saracen after the raids by ferocious pirates who used to plunder the area during the Middle Ages. The gate was part of this wall that stretched for over three miles protecting the city but it was probably through this gate that the Romans passed in their conquest of the city. Another interesting old gate can be found in Arpino, in southern Latium. It has an elegant Gothic shape and is placed on an angle with respect to the direction of the walls. Archaeologists wondered why it was built in this manner instead of facing front. Were there aesthetic, practical, or military reasons? We can find out by taking a look at the city's main access road that climbs to the gate and then runs along the walls. Since soldiers used to hold their shield with their left hand and their weapon with their right hand, during a raid, attackers would have to bend to the side to enter and were thus forced to expose a side of theirs that had no protection. Despite the architectural cunning of the Volscians, the people who built this gate, the city was no match for the powerful Roman army. Leading south out of Rome was the famous Via Latina, which, along with the Via Appia, were two of Rome's ancient superhighways, so to speak, connecting Rome with the strategically placed city of Capua, not far from Naples. 
The Senate of the growing Roman Republic realized that if they connected these isolated settlements in an efficient manner, it would make their defense system stronger. So they built a system of roads which was very advanced for the time. Thousands of laborers worked on keeping the roads clean and passable. The roads were built with a drainage system between the pavement and the hard shoulder, and the workers would replace the stones underneath when wear and tear compromised the integrity of the roadway. There were sidewalks on both sides of the road where pedestrians could walk as they do today. And there were even pedestals along the way that were used to get up onto horses, since in those days people rode without stirrups. Though, as the saying goes, all roads lead to Rome, on the other hand, at the end of these lanes were cities that Rome needed to pull into its empire. And many times, they were resistant. So they built incredible boundary walls, like these at Amelia in Umbria. An average block in these walls was more than one meter high, two to three meters long and deep, and could weigh up to 20 tons. How could they possibly have moved and arranged these monoliths one on top of the other? Centuries ago, it was thought that the Cyclops had erected them, the one-eyed giants connected to Zeus. This is why, for a long time, these walls were called Cyclopean walls. Eventually, scholars discovered that the blocks were taken from a nearby hilltop, slid to the bottom of the hill, squared off, and skillfully piled one on top of the other. The Umbrians who built these walls were a wealthy population that could not resist Rome's onslaught and fell to Rome in the third century BC. The Umbrians had built the Via Amerina, as well as enormous wells. Here, beneath the Amelia City Hall Square, is one of the largest and better preserved examples of ancient hydraulic systems. Rainwater was collected and stored in these reservoirs, which were built to hold vast quantities of water, knowing that the city would need extra water, especially in times of siege. The reservoirs consisted of 10 separate underground containers supported by vaults. The city itself experienced heights of splendor, even after the Romans took over, as proven by the numerous archaeological artifacts housed at the local museum. many battles that the soldiers of the empire had to fight to continue to secure Rome's expansion. By and large, what they were fighting for was land. Land was the spoils of war.
The land was usually worth a great deal of money, which the soldiers could buy or sell depending upon their lot. Great archaeological finds are often the result of research, diligence, and a bit of luck. Digging in an area of South Latium, archaeologists had a reason to celebrate. What they were unearthing was clearly from an important ancient Roman settlement. It was 1978, and the area they were finding things in stretched over an amazing 220 acres. Continued excavation and study of the material confirmed that they had uncovered the remains of the great city of Frigili, which in the middle of the Republican period was the third largest city in central Italy after Rome and Capua. Coins and cups and pieces of pottery all point to the city's former glory. But apart from finding the thousands of pieces and fragments, archaeologists have the daunting task of putting them back together again, like a giant puzzle, discovering what fits where. Joy comes when they do fit together, as in this old frieze. Once everyday objects, like architectural pottery, have been restored, studied, and catalogued, they are ready to be displayed in the museum. One of the great finds of Fragili are the remains of the Temple of Aesculapius, god of medicine. It was the most important building in town and boasted a great variety of decorative elements. Excavations have also unearthed many ex-votos, offerings to the gods to obtain some benefit or to give thanks for a healed body part. These elaborate theater masks were probably used in the decor of private homes, indicating a degree of the city's wealth. What did a typical Roman house of the Republican period look like? These are the remains of probably the most beautiful and largest house in Fragili, built in different stages from the end of the 4th century to the 2nd century BC. And this is what it would have looked like back then. If you were an errand boy or delivery man, you would only have been allowed into the first room, where you might be paid some money or receive a sportula, a little basket, containing some bread and goodies for your efforts. Only important guests could enter further, to a room which contained an impluvium, an ornamental basin, in the middle of the hallway beneath an opening in the roof that let in air and light. The house needed aeration from inside, for the only rooms with windows were those facing the street. In reality, the houses were terraced houses. 
lower basin was always full of water that flowed down from the roof. When the basin was full, the excess water flowed into a cistern underneath, where it was collected for other uses in the house. The upper opening was called a compluvium and was used to convey rainwater. When it started to rain, the roof gutters would let the water flow to the lion's heads. It would then gush from their mouths and send water into the basin below. It was flamboyant and decorative, but only worked on rainy days. It was also, however, a good way to collect precious water. One of the most popular rooms in the house was the triclinium, where guests would recline comfortably on these long, spacious couches and feast to their heart's content. The ancients loved their meals, and the tables would be filled with every kind of delicacy. The food and beverage preparation took place, as it does today, in the kitchen a vital place for the everyday life of the household. Meals would have been served warm, heated by burning coals in a metal brazier that were kept burning thanks to an air intake in front of which a fan was waved. At the back of the house, there was a garden that was surrounded in imperial days by a portico or peristyle. During the imperial period, from 31 BC until 476 AD, Roman houses took on a different appearance in terms of size and decor and became more sumptuous, decorated with more patterns and figures than the simple geometric decor of the previous period. Yet, it was land acquired acre by conquered acre throughout the entire region of Latium that gave the Roman Republic its foothold on what would become the great Roman Empire. Besides the fertile agriculture, the newly conquered and colonized lands would supply Rome with inexpensive raw materials with which it could build its incredible monuments and temples, its symbols of strength. The soldiers of the conquered cities would be incorporated into Rome's ever-expanding military force. mandate at that time? Attack so as not to be attacked, expand so as not to be crushed, and perhaps most importantly, Romanize the conquered. Rome awarded citizenship to those cities and tribes who pledged faithfulness to the Roman rule. Over time, the empire enveloped people from Greece to Spain, from Egypt to England, forging them into one people, Romans. Though it would take a few centuries more for the 200 years of affluency and peace known as the Pax Romana to take hold, Rome started early in solidifying the empire by successfully incorporating its conquered enemies into one family. The warrior's mission was to conquer and control, but his was only half the battle. The real war that Rome won was the development of a culture 
that is the basis for modern Western civilization.